Beloved congregation of the Lord, as we begin our message, would you turn with me in the back of your Psalters to Lord's Day 25 on page 53, the bottom of the page, carrying on to page 54. Page 53 of the Sacraments, Lord's Day 25. Since then, we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only. Where does this faith proceed from? From the Holy Spirit, who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both word and sacraments then ordained and appointed for this end, that they may direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed, for the Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that the whole of our salvation depends upon that one sacrifice of Christ which he offered for us on the cross. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the new covenant or testament? Two, namely holy baptism and the holy supper. Well, beloved congregation, we began to consider this Lord's Day uh, a couple weeks ago now. And we spoke then about how important the subject is while we live in times in which the faithfulness to specific teaching about the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper can be perceived as sectarian or bigoted, the reality is it's nothing of the kind. We yearn to be faithful unto the Lord and to everything he reveals to us, both for his glory and for our good. And so it's very important that as Reformed Christians we understand what it is we believe and confess and that we seek to vindicate those things from the word of God, that we can pass them down to ourselves and to our children. And so it is that the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias or Sinus, took great care before proceeding to the specifics of baptism and the Lord's Supper to speak about the broader category of sacraments to define what they are and their importance. He, you notice in uh, Lord's Day 25, distinguishes that from the converting ordinance of preaching. It's through the preaching of the gospel, through the speaking of the gospel, the reading of the gospel, Revealed in the word of God, this is what converts a sinner, gives him or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus saves them as Christ unites that sinner unto himself. 
And the sacraments are not that. They are not that which converts a sinner. No, they are for the strengthening of the faith of believers. That is their purpose. And in that way, they have a close relationship with the gospel itself. The sacraments, you see, direct our faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we completely reject those teachings and churches that would turn the sacraments into a kind of magic, as though water or, or wine or bread were simply trans, transformed into some magical properties that a priest or a minister could use in order to bring about salvation. Not at all. These things... They relate to our salvation as confirming signs and seals, the Catechism teaches us. Look again there at question 66. In the answer, it says, The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof he may fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And so a sign is something you can see, whereas the words of the gospel go into your ears and thus into your mind. The signs of the sacraments are seen with your eyes. They are signs, but they are also seals. Seals because they have in them the authority of God himself speaking to the Christian believer, assuring him or her that his sins are forgiven him or her for Christ's sake alone. This is a work of the Holy Spirit of God, no less than the giving of the faith, so also the strengthening of the faith. This is the teaching of the Reformed Church. And so, in order to vindicate this teaching, I thought uh, and prayed about the matter and determined to bring us here to Genesis chapter 17. You see, whereas um, the catechism focuses primarily on those sacraments which exist for us today in the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper, circumcision is an old covenant sacrament from which we can learn the principles that will serve us well as we consider the further teaching on this matter. Listen to what Zacharias Ursinus writes in his commentary on this section of his catechism. This is his words. Those things which are included in the definition, that is the definition of a sacrament, belong in common to the sacraments of the Old and New Covenant with these differences that the Old exhibited Christ who was to come with his benefits while the New exhibit him as already come. The rites of the Old were different and more in number as circumcision, sacrifices, oblations, the Passover, the Sabbath, and worshiping at the Ark. Christians have only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The old were more obscure 
The new are clearer and more apparent. The old belonged properly to the posterity of Abraham and his, their servants. The new are binding upon the whole church gathered from the Jews and Gentiles. Now, a few comments about was what Ursinus says there. I probably would add some qualifications as to calling the Sabbath a sacrament, and I trust we'll have occasion to speak about that more fully when we come to the fourth commandment. But in general, it's a very good overview. You see that in the Old Covenant, there were many sacraments that had this purpose of sealing and confirming the gospel into the hearts of God's elect people. And in the New Covenant, there are fewer sacraments, clearer sacraments, and the... um, Yes, in that, in that way, there is a greater perfection as the Christians today look back upon Christ as having already come. And yet the principles that when we look at circumcision, which is certainly one of the Old Testament sacraments, will serve us well as we seek to think clearly about these things. And so with that, I'd like to speak to you this morning about the sacrament of circumcision, the sacrament of circumcision. So we'll see three things. First, it's institution. Second, it's meaning. And third, it's lesson. And let's take as our text, uh, Genesis 17, verse 11, where we read the Lord's words, And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Well, if you recall what we spoke about last time, I trust that we are laying a foundation for a greater understanding of the significance of the old covenant to the new. You see, there might be those who would say, why is it that we're bothering to talk about circumcision? That only had reference to that time, and it only had reference to the Jews, and it certainly has nothing to teach us today. Maybe they would point to a passage like Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, where Paul speaks about this reality that there's no requirement for Christians under the New Testament to be circumcised. He says in Galatians 6, verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. So what it's saying there is it does you no benefit if you are circumcised, and it does you no harm if you, if you are not circumcised. Either of these things are indifferent in themselves. And yet, circumcision, when it is taken as a badge of your rejection of Christ, as indeed the Jews who rejected Jesus took it, they said you must be circumcised in order to please God, even though um, Christ has come. Then the Judaizers, who claim to be Christians, or the Jews who rejected Christ, well, they were in one way or another denying the gospel and denying the, the gospel of justification by faith alone, adding this work of circumcision to the mix. And so, Christ, so Paul says in that connection, 
So Galatians 5, verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And they're speaking about people who take circumcision as a way of rejecting the gospel by adding to the righteousness of Christ or otherwise rejecting Christ himself. I remember listening to um, a YouTube uh, channel from a man who grew up a son of a pastor, an evangelist, who then rejected Christ and uh, became an Orthodox Jew and, and so accepted circumcision in that way. That's more so what Paul is talking about is prohibiting circumcision. It's not to be done at all as a religious ordinance. But as far as a tradition or as far as something that is done for um, family or medical reasons, it's an indifferent thing religiously. And so the question is, why would we talk about, about this today? Well, the reason has to do with our last sermon from our catechism series from Romans chapter 11, where we saw that in Romans 11, the teaching is very clear that the covenant with Abraham, under which circumcision was given, is the very same covenant in which you and I receive salvation. We saw how the great olive tree, representing the one church in all ages, it consisted of the Jews under the old covenant, and then the majority of that nation were broken off. And we as the Gentiles were engrafted into that olive tree. And here you see that clear teaching, the unity of the church founded upon the unity of the one saving, gracious covenant of God. And maybe you remember these words, children, uh, where it said uh, by the words of Paul in Romans 11, verse 16, if the first fruits be holy, the lump also is holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. You see, children, as you look at a great big tree, the roots in the ground, they support the whole tree. And all the branches, they grow out of that. Well, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those would be the roots, the patriarchs. And the promises given unto them support the whole tree, every believer in all ages. And so, as we study circumcision, we're not just studying something that is outdated. We're studying what it reveals unto us about the covenant that God has made with the church. And so we come here to Genesis 17. What an amazing history is before us. There in that amazing appearing, God himself comes down unto Abram as he was called then. He appeared to Abram and said, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. He holds before himself, before Abraham that is, all of his own perfections. He is the almighty one. All perfection, all sufficiency, all glory belongs unto God. And so he says to Abraham, you are mine. He dealt with Abraham before, you see, calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees, revealing unto him that he would make him a great nation, 
as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. We read in Genesis 15 how he promised unto him a son. And from that son would come this great nation. It says that Abraham believed and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And now the Lord appears unto Abraham this further time and adding this requirement that since I am this God unto you, you must walk before me and be thou perfect. So there's a requirement of relationship. You have to walk before me. But as the Holy One, you must sincerely believe upon me. You must fervently seek holiness. You must indeed repent of your sin. And so these things are common to Christians of all times. And as as Abraham comes into the presence of this God, he falls down before him, it says in verse 3. Overcome by the majesty and the glory of God, he falls down. And in what follows, you see that he speaks of his covenant with Abraham, and not only with his covenant, but with his children after him. He says in verse 5, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations. Have I made thee? And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. So you see how it goes along with a name change. His name was originally Abram, which means basically exalted father. And now he will be called Abraham, the father of many nations. Not only of the Israelites, but also the descendants of Esau, the descendants of Ishmael. And ultimately, as the Apostle Paul will say, the father of all believers, all nations will Recognize Abraham as their spiritual father in this covenant. Likewise, you might notice later on that his wife, Sarai, her name is changed to Sarah. And it seems as though both of those names mean something like princess or queen. But before she was, seems to have been called my queen, and now she's simply called queen. And so it is that all believers, they look back unto Abraham and Sarah as their forerunners, as their father and mother, in a sense. In any case, very clearly you have a covenant being made with Abraham and his children. And the heart of that, you can see, is found there uh, in verse 7, where he says, he will be a God unto thee. There doesn't, there doesn't, there can't be found a higher and a greater spiritual blessing than this. To have God as our God and thus to be made his people. Such a gracious condescension to separate a group of hell-deserving sinners unto himself. 
This speaks of a marvelous and a glorious covenant of salvation. But likewise, you can see it's added as well, the promise of the land. There in verse 8, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. A special promise to the descendants of Abraham that they would have this land as their special possession. And that was a token and a sign of the interest that they would have in the world to come. That, you see, was a type of the new heavens and the new earth, as is referred to many times, but it certainly had a literal fulfillment in that land. Well, this is the covenant that he's speaking of, and it's in that context that he speaks of circumcision. Circumcision is given in this time, at this particular point in his life, as a sign of his covenant. Look at verses 9 to 11. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee, in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and he shall ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. So there verse eleven, which we listed as our text, that's going to be the central thing we need to be focusing on. For where he speaks about this operation taking place on the male organ of generation among all the male babies of this nation of Israel, he doesn't just say that you are to do this as though it's a commandment. He says in verse 11 that it is a token of the covenant. And more modern translations would translate that sign, and really the sense is the same, a visible sign of the covenant. And it's interesting, sometimes it's spoken of as the covenant itself. Verse 10, this is my covenant, which ye shall keep. And it says in verse 13, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So the covenant in their flesh is the cutting of the foreskin. Literally in the male babies is the covenant or more properly the sign of the covenant. Now you can... Imagine what, a, what an incredible thing that the very Lord of the whole universe should give such a commandment, should give such a sign unto this old man at the age of 99, and not only him, but all of his male children and all of his male servants, all those in his households, all those in whom he had been entrusted for their material and their spiritual welfare, 
all of them were required to submit unto circumcision. It's added also this warning in verse 14. And the uncircumcised male child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. There's some discussion about whether that warning or that penalty falls upon the child or the parent. And I think that um, if, you, if you look at the Hebrew and if you look at the history of, of how this has been unfolded in the history of the Jewish people, and as well you can compare it with the episode in Exodus 4, which I uh, hope to look at at a future time. But in all these cases, uh, it seems as though the penalty falls upon the father. On the father and the parents, that... Uh, they have a responsibility to circumcise this child. Or when the, the child comes of age and that child comes to years of understanding, they also have this responsibility. And in either the case, the penalty is to be cut off from the people, to be separated, essentially excommunicated from the worship and from the covenant people of God and that for breaking the covenant of the Lord. And so important was this commandment, and so glorious was the uh, revelation that Abraham received, that you can read the rest of the chapter, it's very clear, that all in his household submitted unto this commandment. The last thing I would mention, of course, is that central to this is the promise of Isaac. The promise of Isaac. That there was this promise that a child would be born into this old, frail man and his old, frail wife. And that this would be the the child of promise. Verse 16, And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Verse 17, Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And the Lord confirms it, not through Ishmael, who he had with uh, the woman Hagar, but through Isaac, the son of promise. Ultimately, everything points to that, that this, through Isaac, would the promises of the covenant come. And Isaac's name, of course, means laughter, signifying that laugh of joy and surprise that Abraham experienced. Well, I hope we've established here these are the circumstances of the institution of uh, circumcision. And these are important things, congregation, for us to bear in mind. We serve a God who has revealed himself in history. And it's through the study of his history that we can come to discern his dealings with us today. But now I'd like to transition uh, from the uh, institution of this sacrament to its meaning, to its meaning. And circling back to this uh, principle in verse 11, that it shall be a token or a sign of the covenant betwixt me and you. And immediately, 
If all we had to go on was this chapter, we ought to see that what our confession says is absolutely true. Now, this is not having to do merely with having a stake in a physical land called Canaan, not merely that they are part of a physical nation called Israel. No, this is a spiritual matter, a spiritual matter to be circumcised. It is something that the Holy Spirit of God uses in the hearts of his people. And I think that that is abundantly clear in the New Testament and the Old. Let me just read for you what is found here in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. It says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. And not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Not in the flesh, but in the heart. In this, not in the letter, but in the spirit. Where we see this ordinance, where we see the sacrament, this cut in the flesh, we are to ask ourselves, what is it that the Lord is doing in the souls of his people through this sacrament? And for that, as you look at how this is spoken about throughout the, uh, throughout the words of Scripture, what you find is that again and again, this cutting away of the foreskin of the male babies, that this is something that represents a change in the hearts of his people, a necessary change which must take place in every soul if they would have God as their saving God. Let me just read uh, a number of examples here. First, found in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. There the Lord warns the people, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Jeremiah 4 and verse 4 circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Jeremiah 9, verse 26 Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. To be uncircumcised in heart, what does this represent? But that we are all of us conceived and born in sin. Appropriate that the Lord would use the male organ of generation to represent this fact that every father bestows unto their children a sinful and corrupt nature as they conceive that child. And all of our children are born with hearts in rebellion against God, and the wrath of God burns against us as his natural enemies. For each one of us have this terrible, this terrible state of 
alienation from God and corrupt hearts that war against God. We are all of us born and conceived in sin. And so just as the father was required to take the knife and to cut away the foreskin of the flesh, so also another operation must take place, whether for a younger one or for an older one. That operation upon the heart, cutting away the flesh, making that great change which we call regeneration, which we call the impartation of a new life, a new creature. Isn't that what Paul had said? Uncircumcision and circumcision, they profit nothing, but a new creature in Jesus Christ. That's what it was always all about. Not of the cutting of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. And so, uh, perhaps the best example of that is found in Leviticus 26, where there's a, a long prophecy about how the Lord will deal with his people in the future, how they, will, how they will be rebelling against him, the people of Israel will rebel against the Lord, and how it is he will draw them back unto himself from their captivity. Let me just read Leviticus 26, verses 40 to 42. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember and I will remember the land. And so you see that to have the circumcised heart, the heart that has this divine operation by the Holy Spirit, well, that is a heart which confesses sin which repents of sin and that strives after holiness. That true new creature in Jesus Christ. And so how wise it is that God would appoint a sign that very accurately pictures what must happen in the human heart. This is the sign of it. And in that very sense, it is also a seal. A seal for the one who has this operation upon their heart. Notice how Paul puts it in Romans 4, verse 16 and 17. Therefore it is of faith that it might be of grace to the end of the promise might be sure to all the seed. Now he's talking there about the promise given to Abraham and how Abraham believed by faith and it was counted him for righteousness. But he goes on there in verse 16, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. And if you go up further, uh, further in that chapter, earlier on in verse 11, it says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, 
though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but all but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet he had being yet uncircumcised. So the argument there is that the the essence of it, the heart of it, Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is why the argument of the um, the Judaizers that he's responding to is so wrong. The argument that you had to be circumcised in order to be justified of your sins and to receive the righteousness of Christ by faith, well, it makes no sense at all because Abraham received that before he was circumcised. But note what he puts there. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith. Think of the seal of a king. He writes a letter. He writes that letter to one of his subjects, and he puts some wax on the back of that envelope, and he heats up that wax, puts it on the back of the envelope, takes his ring with his seal upon it, and stamps that seal into the wax, handing that letter unto the one who is to receive it. And as they turn around, they say, Surely this is from the king, for it bears his seal. That was how circumcision functioned, you see. For the elect believers under that old covenant, they would reflect upon their circumcision and they would regard circumcision not merely as a picture of what God does spiritually in cutting away the flesh, but also a seal that God justifies the ungodly by faith in Jesus Christ through the righteousness given by faith alone. And so this was confirmed to them and their strength was sustained and preserved. How is it that circumcision pictured this, the very heart of the gospel, Christ giving us his righteousness and bearing our sin? Well, you think about that. There is a newborn baby, cute, adorable, and yet sinful, subject to death, subject to judgment. And what happens? Well, there is a cut in the part of that baby, and that part is discarded while the rest of the baby is consecrated unto God and set apart as holy. This is not what happens unto the church. The church as a whole, set apart unto God, set apart as holy. But at what cost? At the cost of the one who was cut off. Isaiah 53 and verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation, for he was cut off of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. I say there is this mystical significance, this mysterious way in which even Christ and the gospel of his death is set forth in circumcision. And if um, that connection is a little bit more ambiguous than certainly the connection to Isaac, the child of promise with a miraculous birth, 
that it was through not Ishmael, the child of the flesh, but through the child of promise, through this miraculous birth unto these old, old uh, couple that surely set forth that there was another child to come who would indeed save and redeem his people. Yes, it was shadowy. Yes, it was uh, but a picture. And yet for the poor believers under that old covenant, they could see through the shadows that the Savior was coming. And so it was that they looked unto him alone. Thus far we've seen that not only is there this uh, reality of the institution, but also the meaning of circumcision. I'd just like to close with some observations and practical implications. At this point, we are not going to speak of baptism itself. We are not going to speak of uh, the proper ordinance of baptism because all that can be proven from this text, and indeed we, I think it has been proven, is that we are in the same covenant as Abraham and that the covenant with Abraham included children. This cannot be denied. This is why those baby boys were separated unto the covenant of God. This is why Abraham says unto verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. And were we to say nothing else about baptism, we could say this, that circumcision, though expired, it teaches us this important lesson, and that is that the children of believers are in the covenant of grace. They are in the covenant of grace. And whatever else our Baptist friends may want to say, they cannot deny that unless they would deny what the word of God plainly teaches Psalm 103, verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, to those that remember his commandments to do them. How gracious is the Lord God to enter into covenant not only with, to, with Abraham, but unto Abraham's seed. Not even only his physical descendants, but did you notice all in his household, even his slaves and servants who are part of that household, God says, well, you have a responsibility unto them, Abraham. You are their spiritual leader. And so they as well, I would have them to receive this sign of circumcision in their flesh together with their baby boys. Does this not show us how marvelously gracious the Lord is to make no mistake that the grace of God is not only for older ones, but also for the younger. While we came into this world, we were conceived and born in sin, but a Savior had already been provided, and a God had already opened wide the gates for salvation even for the children of believers. It says in Genesis 18, the chapter over, as the Lord is speaking to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, it says in Genesis 18, verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? 
For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken unto him. Now we understand, don't we, that whatever else we may say from circumcision, it is this that we could learn, that the heads of the home, they have a special responsibility for the religious care and instruction of their children. We live in days in which there is moral anarchy, in which you can have a father and a mother say, we have one religion, and the children will say, well, I'm going to follow Islam, or I'm going to follow atheism. And the reality is the Lord says no. Not only the heads of the home, but also through them the whole family is to be consecrated unto God. All the family must worship God in the home. All the family must worship God in the church. All the family must obey the commandments of God. This is the special responsibility given to the heads of the home, that they ensure that the Lord is honored and obeyed, including by their children. Of course, it's the case that this... um, as children grow up and they move out, there's no longer authority. We, we pray for them. We instruct them. We love them. But especially when they are living in the home under our roof, we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that we can learn from this. And, and this as well, we should learn, and that is that those who are in covenant with God, covenant children, they are not to marry outside the covenant. Not to marry outside the covenant. Later on in Genesis, there's this uh, very tragic episode about a woman named Dinah in chapter 34. And you have this uh, daughter of Jacob who is raped terribly by um, a man named Shechem. And you have this terrible story about how the brothers of, of Dinah, they executed vengeance and killed the, those who perpetrated this deed. A dark story in which very few people come out looking very well, except perhaps Dinah herself. But in any case, there's this one point in which the brothers of of Dinah speak unto the man who had done this deed to their sister and who wanted their sister to be his wife. It says in Genesis 34, verse 14, And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. Now, as it falls out, they had ulterior motives for saying this that weren't entirely honest. Yet the principle that they spoke was true. And that is that where God has separated a people unto himself, of which circumcision was a sign, those who are born into the covenant and thus truly part of the visible church, whether or not they are elect and whether or not they are converted, they are required to marry within the covenant. It is flatly a sin against God to pursue romantic relationship with someone who is not a Christian. 
It is something that is dishonoring to the Lord. It is something the Bible speaks against. And so for ourselves and for our families, let us be abundantly clear that it's the Lord who comes first. It's the Lord who we are to honor, especially in our marriages. Where someone makes a mistake and marries someone who is outside the faith, then the Lord can even work in that circumstance. There is forgiveness. There is healing. But the reality is that it should be recognized as such as sin that must be repented of and warned against where we see it in others. So we see here that there is implications not only for our children, but also for all of us. Let us remember also what Abraham says, or what Paul says about this, and we'll close with this. Romans 9, verses 6 and 7, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. It's not enough, you see, just to be one who is in the visible covenant community, as much of a blessing as that is. We must know ourselves to be the children of promise. We must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that way, in the way of faith and repentance, can the sacraments rightly assure us of our salvation in Jesus Christ.